Hello and welcome. You're listening to Epic Podcast, Emergency Preparedness in Canada. My name is Jillian. And I'm Grayson. And this is our annual end of year episode, 2021, a year in review. In this episode, we will be experiencing a bit of deja vu as we look over familiar but still very eventful hazardscape of 2021, including our epic disaster highlight reel and some major developments in the field. We'll also be discussing what we think 2022 might have in store and making a few New Year's resolutions of our own. All this and more on this episode of Epic Podcast, current, relevant, Canadian. Now I'd like to start off with the biggest news story of the year. We have grown our Epic team. We're very excited to introduce Jillian Wong, our new Epic producer, social media manager, and co-host. Welcome, Jillian. Thanks. And as you can tell, I'm not Josh. And unfortunately, he's not able to join us today as he's busy studying for this very important medical licensing exam, which was deferred a few times due to COVID. We wish him the best of luck. And in the meantime, I'm helping to fill in. I work in emergency management in BC, and I'm particularly interested in how we communicate preparedness and safety information to the public, and importantly, how we can spark enthusiastic engagement in preparedness. I'm super happy to be joining Epic Podcast because there are so many wonderful speakers on this topic and oh, so many more topics that can expand my emergency management knowledge and yours. Well, Jillian, welcome. And you picked a heck of a year to join us. 2021 was a doozy. And of course, the number one disaster on everyone's radar continues to be the COVID-19 pandemic. Uh, Here at Epic, we've done our best not to comment too much on perishable COVID news. There are far, far better sources for that. And we're going to continue to do that. But it is impossible to talk about 2021 without talking about COVID. So here are our top pandemic picks from 2021 that we think held the most relevance for emergency management as a field. Number one, uh, virtual vaccine appointment issues and fraud. Many provinces experienced appointment system overload issues and scams on both sides of virtual vaccine booking tools. Uh, Some phone scams popped up offering vaccine appointments at a price, which of course everything should be free in Canada. Uh, And there was suspicion that groups were organizing to book appointments and purposefully not show up to tie up scarce resources in protest of public health measures, not to mention the bribes offered to healthcare workers and things like fake vaccine passports that popped up. Now, I don't think this is surprising, but I think there's a lot of learning here for other virtual emergency management techniques, like virtual evacuee registration, virtual emergency aid, or even virtual recovery tools. I think there's probably an increasing threat that was kind of realized uh, as part of the pandemic. Uh, Number two, and this was my pick, is I think there's lots of learnings for disaster mortuary planning. So it's no surprise health system vulnerabilities have certainly been exposed recently. And in early 2021, southwestern Ontario morgues hit the news when even the largest morgue reached capacity. And the London Health Services Centre network of hospitals had to bring in refrigerated trailers or reefer trucks to store bodies temporarily while normal systems for management of decedents caught up. Now, DMORT or disaster mortuary care is a problem that really hasn't been very well addressed in Canada. In fact, most provinces mass fatality plans are either very old or very, very new. And this might be because even the government of Canada archived its 2028 pandemic mass fatality plan last year and released some very basic interim guidance in its place. So technically, we don't even actually have a federal mass fatality plan right now. 
Uh, interestingly, this guidance is still mentions arenas and skating rinks as a temporary option, and we know this is historically a very bad idea, uh, although it does highlight the negative community impacts of this and states that this should be a last resort only. Still of issue, the responsibilities for setting up temporary morgues are still very unclear, and there are a lot of ethical, procedural, and even logistical issues that aren't well addressed. Uh, in my experience working on this locally, I've certainly realized that there's this perception out there that hospitals are supposed to fill this gap. And hospitals don't deal with the dead, they deal with the living. Uh, so really, this is a medical examiner role, or maybe even a municipal emergency management role. So I think there's still lots to do and still lots of implications for future disasters, or as we've seen this year, disasters on disasters. Then uh, in May of 2021, the much anticipated review of the Global Public Health Intelligence Network commissioned by Canada's Minister of Health was released. You might remember that the government of Canada came under fire for essentially dismantling this public health surveillance system leadership just prior to COVID-19. And while the report stated that earlier detection of COVID-19 may not have been possible, it did point out a number of improvements that are focused mainly on renewing the mandate, governance, information flow, and use of technology. There were several recommendations focused on integrating the mission of the Global Public Health Intelligence Network into the Public Health Agency of Canada's mission and operations. There were also recommendations to expand the use of technology and increase strategic partnerships, which should include academia, the private sector, and the provincial territorial emergency management agencies, who previously didn't receive the alerts or daily reports. The review also noted that there was wasn't a consistent mechanism for assessing risk and recommended the creation of a risk assessment office within PHAC. Um, and this would be to turn information into intelligence. I think there will likely be an increased role for emergency managers to play in this system, even if it is only as the end, end user. And I'm very interested to see the risk assessment methodology they use if the recommendations are followed, as health risk assessment systems are usually more robust than your average HRVA or HIRA. Yeah, I agree. We've talked a lot about health information systems and HIRAs and HRVAs on this show. So pretty interested to see what that's about. But enough about COVID. Let's chat about the weather and what made this year's epic disaster highlight real. <laughs> All right. So Environment Canada released a list of the top 10 weather stories of the year. Its senior climatologist Dave Phillips calls 2021 the most destructive, the most expensive, and the deadliest year for weather in Canadian history. Holy smokes. Uh, yeah. British Columbia is featured in half, if not more, of the top stories and is Environment Canada's top too. So we're going to lean on this list a lot, but in summary, 2021 was hot, cold, windy, and wet, sometimes all at the same time. All right, starting up with heat-related disaster news, 2021 was the driest summer in 75 years, according to Environment Canada, which meant some of the worst drought conditions impacting Canadian farmers ever. 
This had impacts on critical food production, such as wheat, which was down as much as 35% this year. Add this to existing supply chain issues, and we've certainly seen an increase in price for consumers. Now, this brings up some interesting risks for emergency management, as I'm not sure most emergency managers are all that linked into agriculture, food supply, or potential food insecurity or famine issues. And much like the pandemic, where emergency management struggled to find its place, I'm not really sure what role municipal agencies would play in a large food disruption. Uh, probably some room for interagency planning here. Also in heat news, Alberta and Saskatchewan both experienced their warmest summers in 60 years, but the heat dome experience in BC is probably the top story here. If you're unfamiliar with the term, a heat dome is caused by a ridge of high pressure, which traps heat, which would normally rise underneath it for several days. This is a regular occurrence, but this year's June to July and even into August heat dome was, was so much worse with new all-time records being set in places like Lytton, uh, which I'll talk more about in a moment, which recorded temperatures of 49.6 degrees Celsius, surpassing some former Canadian all-time highs of 45 degrees. Now, we've talked on this show before about heat waves being an underappreciated hazard in Canada and this silent, invisible killer of silenced and invisible people. And it sounds like this is now being recognized more and more. For example, in September, the BC Centre for Disease Control called this heat dome event the deadliest weather event in Canadian history. The centre identified three key vulnerabilities, which should be familiar to you, a lack of greenery, low socioeconomic status, and living alone. Overall, the recently released BC Coroner's Report on this event states that 595 people died because of heat between June and August, with 131 of those occurring in just 48 hours on June 28th and 29th. Now, this is a 300% increase from previous years and accounted for about 70% of all sudden deaths overall. As you might expect, the elderly and the vulnerable made up the majority of fatalities, and 96% of deaths occurred in residential settings, which included senior homes and long-term care facilities. Now, in this report, there was no data uh, available about air conditioning availabilities, and the facilities weren't really broken down by facility type, and, and comorbidities weren't really broken down either, which I found kind of interesting. Uh, but I do think that reports like this one, or the Quebec heat wave report from a few years ago, are must-reads for emergency managers. There's still a lot of lingering myths about who's at risk and how best to respond to heat emergencies. Interestingly, uh, some experts are now calling for air conditioners to be classified as medical equipment in events such as this, which might free up some resources or political will to address this, uh, and the fact that fewer than 40% of households in BC even have air conditioning. Now, overall, there were several criticisms to the response of this event, including insufficient ambulance capacity, insufficient communication, uh, and action by provincial government. And the premier even admitted that this hazard was overshadowed by COVID reopening plans. Interestingly, uh, the excuse of only single-digit heat fatalities in previous years was used. You know, in previous years, there just didn't seem to be as many heat fatalities. But we know that that's just because the way heat fatalities are measured has changed dramatically in the past few years. So really, I think this invisible risk is just becoming a bit more visible. Also, as a direct result of the heat dome, the village of Lytton was almost completely destroyed by fire. Uh, almost 90% of it burned to the ground just hours after setting that new heat record that I mentioned. Tragically, two people died as there was almost no warning and the fire spread incredibly fast. Uh, there are still some ongoing investigations as to the exact cause of the fire. I think this will be an incident to follow in 2022 as there's lots of discussion about how to rebuild Lytton responsibly. 
Now, since we're talking about wildfires, uh, this summer was Ontario's worst wildfire season on record, with almost 800,000 hectares burned, which is 80,000 more than the previous record, and over 3,000 people temporarily displaced. Of interest, uh, an evacuation trend that seems to be emerging, I think, is that evacuees don't just go to the nearest spot or the next village over. They're sent across the province or even to other provinces as the impacts of wildfires and heat cover a much larger geographic area now. Uh, in some cases in, in the Ontario fires, uh, evacuees were transported over a thousand kilometers away for evacuation, which certainly puts them in a different social setting, a different support group setting, um, and poses its own challenges. Elsewhere, wildfires caused persistent poor air quality, and in BC, wildfires magnified flooding impacts by searing the ground and essentially making it hydrophobic. So quite a year for heat news and some worrying trends for emergency management. Uh, what about some cold news, Jillian? Oh, there was definitely cold news, that's for sure. Um, in January, Nova Scotia, New Brunswick, and PEI experienced a winter storm with snow accumulations between 20 and 30 centimeters. Um, this storm at one point had 17,000 clients uh, without electricity, um, and that was just the beginning of the year. In February, a month later, a polar vortex broke 225 daily records for low minimum temperatures in Canada. Um, and just to kind of give you an idea of what temperatures we're talking about, at one point, uh, Wekwiti Northwest Territories was minus 51.9 Celsius, which... Ooh, that's cold. Then in July, a severe thunderstorm with ping pong sized hail caused flash flooding in Calgary. Um, there was significant property damage with 16,000 insurance claims. Calgary isn't a stranger to hailstorms, of course, as it experienced a significant hailstorm in 2020 as well. And that hailstorm holds the record for fourth costliest weather related disaster in Canada. It appears that this year's hailstorm flash flood combo didn't have the same financial hit, but it's still on Environment Canada's top 10. As we speak right now, Western Canada is experiencing record low temperatures from an Arctic outflow. So the stereotype of cold Canadian winters is still solidly our reality and maybe getting colder and realer with time. Yeah, I'm tempted to say in other news, sky blue. But I think you're right. I think this is getting more and more disruptive and the cold snaps are certainly an issue, um, especially when they're out of season. Uh, in the healthcare system that I work in, one of the most impactful cold events was a bit of a thaw freeze event where suddenly everything became a skating rink after a bit of a, a rainstorm. And we had this slow burn, what I'm calling an orthonami, basically an influx of orthopedic injuries to healthcare systems. So the out of season cold snaps are probably just as if not more impactful than the normal cold snaps. Mm -hmm. Well, let's talk about the wind for a second. Uh, hurricanes, high winds, and tornadoes were absolutely prevalent in 2021. In September, Hurricane Larry made landfall in Newfoundland as a Category 1 hurricane and knocked out power to 60,000 people, caused some flooding by the storm surge, and even ripped the roof off a school, which reinforces something we've talked about in previous episodes, that large auditoriums or gymnasiums are not a good muster point for wind events, despite what some school plans might say. As far as tornadoes go, there was a high number of EF2 tornadoes this year, including one in Quebec, which caused a fatality, and an outbreak of seven tornadoes in July 15th in Ontario, uh, including one in Barrie that damaged 25 buildings and injured 11. 
There's also a waterspout tornado spotted by the Vancouver airport in November, which is quite rare, but luckily there were minimal impacts to air operations on that one. And then it was just plain windy in the prairie with some record-breaking winds of 161 kilometers per hour in Saskatchewan and Alberta, and probably higher, as interestingly it was noted, that so many anemometers uh, blew away that undoubtedly many more records were set than were reported. So the stuff that's meant to measure the wind blew away. That's how bad it was. Now, these aren't unusual events in Canada, and we know there are issues with rating and forecasting tornadoes, and, and we're well uh, acquainted with the impacts they have on critical infrastructure. But what seems to be recognized more and more is that current Canadian building codes don't support preparedness or building back better very well. Uh, for example, Greg Kopp, who's the lead researcher for the Northern Tornadoes Project, is advocating for wide use of tornado straps, which help address the uplift effects of tornadoes and only cost a few hundred per house, but hasn't had much of an uptake because there is no legislated requirement to put this very simple mechanism in. Now, I've heard it said often that we are continuing to build infrastructure designed for a climate that just no longer exists. And we actually have an epic guest from the Institute for Catastrophic Loss Reduction coming onto the show to talk about this. So stay tuned for that and start reading up on these sorts of initiatives so you can provide some pressure to change the codes and legislation in the future. Okay, let's switch up and go to our category of wet. British Columbia declared their third state of emergency this year after back-to-back rain events in November dropped more than 200 millimeters of rain on BC within 48 hours. The weather event caused flooding, mudslides, and damage to rail lines and highways. At one point, the lower mainland of Vancouver was completely cut off from the rest of Canada due to impacts on infrastructure. Infrastructure, of course, wasn't the only major impact. There were sadly five deaths and people were evacuated, trapped, or stranded at various points during the event. More than 17,000 people were displaced. A really big aspect of this event is the impact on the agricultural industry, which was hit hard. Farmland, flooded, livestock were lost in great numbers, and while BC experienced supply chain disruptions, the agriculture was doubly impacted as they as the disruptions impacted processing and the supply of livestock feed. All in all, this event may turn out to be the most expensive disaster in Canadian history. The response to this event would have needed to be extremely multifaceted given the variety of health, safety, property, economic, and social impacts, and there were definitely some unique firsts. So in the first days of the event, Canada Task Force One was deployed to support local organizations with rescue and evacuation efforts after mudslides trapped 275 people on a highway overnight. This isn't the first, this isn't the milestone that I'm talking about, but it comes later when Canada Task Force One was deployed to Abbotsford to perform rapid structure assessments. So this is the real first application of the new Canadian post-disaster building assessment tool that was introduced last year. And then another first, uh, a horse was rescued by helicopter using a specialized sling. When we're talking about emergency management, we're talking about loved ones 
uh, whether or not they're on four legs or two. And uh, this horse was was trapped due to roadway washouts and whatnot. So, you know, there's a there's a time and a place to save a horse too. You know, I think it's actually the first time I've heard this term atmospheric river and you got what, two or three of them in, in rapid succession. So lots of firsts all around. And the response to this is ongoing. I'm sure we're going to hear a lot more uh, about the overall response and, and recovery. But there are some early criticisms of the response as well, specifically to do with public alerting in BC. Um, you will probably be aware in the news that public alerting or the alert ready system was not used uh, in this particular incident. And politicians and leaders were asked multiple times why, and there really wasn't a very good answer. For reference, uh, Ontario, for example, has sent alerts more than 200 times with this alert ready system in the last couple of years alone for emergencies like tornadoes, amber alerts, and all sorts of other things. Saskatchewan, Alberta all use the alert ready system. So BC might be falling under some pretty significant criticism for failing to activate this emergency response system. And it's interesting, I think uh, this speaks to um, something I've noticed over the past year that, you know, the, the age of operating with impunity for emergency managers might just be over. Uh, there are standards out there. There are best practices. The public are now aware of them. And it really is up to us to, to know about them and activate them um, or be roasted by, by public opinion. Yeah, I think people are more and more aware of the different tools uh, available to emergency managers and, and also just generally more aware of who emergency management agencies are. So absolutely, I think with more recognition also comes kind of this greater level of responsibility. Kind of continuing on with um, the, the flood event, I think we can anticipate that the recovery phase of the BC floods will probably take years. And um, interestingly, the federal government and BC government announced a new joint committee to address extreme weather and climate resilience in British Columbia. So the committee will focus on immediate support for remote and Indigenous communities in the aftermath of the extreme weather event. And then as a kind of broader focus, the committee aims to build cleaner, healthier communities in BC that are more protective against climate events and also support national climate goals and, and net zero emission targets. The joint committee is reflected in the mandate letter too. So the Minister of Public Safety and Emergency Preparedness received this mandate letter from the top and will ensure that uh, lessons learned, and this is a quote, uh, that lessons learned from the recent climate-related floods and fires are translated into effective policy action, end quote. So overall, a rather cold, hot, wet, windy year. Uh, and yet again, we saw just so many records set with the continued trend of increased frequency, duration, and severity of disasters due to climate change. Now, I'm sure you've heard that this may well be the most important decade in human history for climate action. And I think this is kind of summed up pretty well in yet another Canadian first to do with the weather. So in BC, a physician made the very first diagnosis of climate change uh, for a patient who had some health concerns after air quality issues. And it was a bit of a polarizing act, but a very interesting concept. And the connection between climate change and individual health outcomes, I don't think has ever been as clear as it has this year. Uh, we've got a podcast and a guest, Dr. Sadir, uh, coming up in 2022 on this one. So I'm very excited to focus a little bit more on climate change on our podcast 
2022 as well. In earthquake news, Earthquake Canada uh, has completed their review for the year, and there were about 46 earthquakes in 2021, most of them between magnitude 2 and 5. Uh, interestingly, in my neck of the woods, there was an earthquake in Banff, which is just about the last place you'd expect to have an earthquake. Pretty minimal impacts overall, but Jillian, I hear there was one in your neck of the woods as well. Yes, there was, uh, just off the coast of Vancouver Island and uh, the lower mainland of BC. Um, so there was a 3.6 magnitude earthquake and it was felt by quite a few people and there are of course regularly earthquakes but these felt earthquakes are good reminders of earthquake risks in general. On the topic of earthquakes I'm keeping my eye out for when Canada will have their very own earthquake early warning system. Um, so an earthquake early warning system detects P waves allowing automated public alerts to warn people of imminent shaking and this technology is already being used in in the United States. And I think it'll be really helpful to have it here in Canada as it gives people additional seconds to drop cover and hold on, um, which are seconds that they otherwise wouldn't have. The applications of this technology are also very promising, such as stopping vehicles from entering bridges or tunnels. Uh, it could you know, open ambulance or fire hall bay doors, um, and you could kind of integrate this technology with tsunami warning systems as well. Um, but it seems I'll have to be patient as the tool won't be ready until 2024 in Canada. Yeah, that'll be useful as we're all still sort of waiting for the big one in Vancouver. I've actually heard a lot of people talk about the, the massive landslides and the critical infrastructure disruption, the transport disruptions from the floods as a bit of a practice run, if, if you like, for the big one because of all of, of these disruptions. Now, talking about transportation disruptions, uh, we usually talk a little bit about rail disasters on the show. And there were, of course, multiple rail disasters this year, uh, many of which were tied to those flooding and landslides in BC, uh, as well as some continued fallout from the deadly 2019 field BC rail crash. A lawsuit alleging that CP Rail muzzled investigators and blocked a criminal investigation into the incident has been raised, so we'll have to keep our eye on that one. In addition, the Railway Association of Canada released their trends report this year, which shows a steady rise in derailments, rail accidents, and fires uh, almost across the board. Interestingly, after uh, the fire in Lytton and that heat dome event, Transport Canada ordered speed reductions and increased mitigation and a 48-hour stop to rail traffic in some areas, showing the recognized but maybe not overly publicized link between heat events, rail, and fire. Uh, I have to wonder if this will become a bit more common and may even lead to supply chain disruptions as a result of heat waves. Yeah, I, I mean, interesting uh, this year to see so much uh, happening in terms of rail disruptions. Um, and your point about supply chain, I mean, I can't think of a year when the public has talked about supply chain issues more than this year. On to more tragic news. Uh, a review of the Nova Scotia shooting from last year has found that the alert request didn't go out until about five minutes before the situation was ended by our CMP. So earlier reports had said that there was a lack of effective messaging, but as this investigation unfolds, it turns out that there was probably a lack of 
notification from the RCMP uh, and that lag certainly led to a lack of uh, alerting for the public. So the investigation certainly is ongoing for this incident, uh, but it's already had some wide sweeping impacts for law enforcement across the country. Yeah, definitely. I I think a lot of uh, organizations and, and police organizations are looking at their own ways of notifying people about active deadly threats. Um, in BC, uh, actually, you were just mentioning um, the use of the public alert system. It did, in fact, get used for the first time this year um, and the first time in its history uh, for an active shooter event. So um, BC, certainly, uh, it sounds like they likely may have done a review of their alert-ready practices. Um, and But then also in Ontario, I think you're seeing some, some changes. Certainly, um, Ontario was trying to make amendments to we're trying to introduce, let's say, a Community Safety and Policing Act, which would also propose some changes for how police respond to active attacker events. And um, although this kind of process started before the Nova Scotia mass shootings, I think we're starting to see the repercussions of of that event um, kind of fold into to this process of drafting uh, regulation. So there seems to be a very strong emphasis in the draft regulation that um, every chief of police should have access to an emergency alert system um, and should be using it to notify uh, the public about an active threat. So it'll be interesting to see where that draft regulation lands. Mm -hmm. And I really do think this Nova Scotia shooting changed Canada and the way that uh, at least we do alerting for these sorts of events. Now on to cybersecurity, and we don't often talk about cybersecurity on the show, probably because uh, I have absolutely no idea what I'm talking about for the most part, but it, it does seem to be a really significant threat for 2021, as according to a 2021 Nordlocker report. Uh, Canadian companies were the third biggest victim of ransomware attacks, with construction companies being the top uh, target within Canada. And the Canadian Centre for Cybersecurity is warning of an increase in attack frequency and sophistication in coming years. Of particular note, healthcare systems in Toronto and Newfoundland and Labrador were significantly impacted by cyber attacks. Uh, In Newfoundland and Labrador, this resulted in the cancellation of thousands of medical appointments and huge backlog and and disruption. And I think this could probably be an area of focus for Epic in 2022, as I'm not really clear on the role for traditional emergency management in this, this highly technical hazardscape. And I see a lot of dependencies, especially since a lot of emergency management agencies have gone virtual, that probably haven't been fully addressed. So more to come on that. In other news, uh, this year, Iqaluit experienced a do not consume order for its tap water, which began in October when concerns about fuel contamination came to light. Um, The do not consume order lasted nearly two months and 8,000 residents were impacted. This wasn't just, you know, a boil water advisory, which is already, you know, quite concerning, but um, really it was it was an issue where the military came in to assist and cost the small city more than 1.5 million dollars just to have access to water. And finally, a little bit of good news in our disaster highlight reel. There was a very successful mine rescue in Sudbury, Ontario, where 39 mine workers were evacuated after the elevators went down in an almost flawless evacuation. So good job to them in this uh, very difficult, uh, very technical environment. 
So there is one more disaster category that I want to cover, and I think this one's a, a pretty tricky one, and that's the category of uh, protests or civil disobedience. And this was incredibly prevalent in, in 2021, whether it was protests against public health measures, climate change, international events, pipelines. Uh, it, it doesn't really matter. These events are particularly challenging for emergency managers, both technically, but also ethically. And this came up once again when I was chatting with a friend, Tom Cox, who's a bit of a, an ICS scholar, because it comes in direct conflict with the priorities from which we draw our social license to act. If you're an ICS guru, then you know that the, the incident priorities are always the life, environment, and, and uh, property. But in an event like a protest, the priorities are pitted against two different political factions or different belief systems, so they are not as clear and our knee-jerk reaction to suspend civil liberties based on a shared understanding of priorities doesn't really apply here. So there's a lot more confusion and a lot more ethical and moral distress for emergency managers here. And I think this was brought to light particularly in 2021 during the Ferry Creek injunction. So if you're not familiar with this, this is a uh, indigenous uh, issue where an indigenous group created a blockade in the Ferry Creek area and faced off against uh, land offenders, logging companies and RCMP. Uh, interesting, RCMP has called this the largest civil disobedience event in Canadian history, has spent almost $6.8 million so far enforcing this this injunction, and there are over uh, 1,200 arrests so far. So a, a huge civil disobedience issue. And it made me think that I, I know plenty of emergency management organizations that have practiced for parades or other types of events, but I don't know many who have made a conscious decision beforehand on how they are going to interact in this highly political civil disobedience uh, role, which is a little bit different for emergency management. So certainly a, a lot to think about. And I think some really applicable lessons for indigenous uh, emergency management. So another Canadian first this year uh, was the first uh, Truth and Re Reconciliation Day being observed in Canada. So the, the day came to light uh, after the discovery of mass graves at residential school sites. Many Indigenous communities grapple with the repercussions and generational trauma of residential schools. And this day is an invitation to everybody to do the work of reconciliation year long and to integrate reconciliation and culturally appropriate preparedness, response and recovery into our work. And I think this is a really big deal. It was a, a huge deal that this was finally recognized as a, an international day and a, a progress in the road to reconciliation. But I think there's a lot we can learn and work on in emergency management specifically. And there are several examples of this. You know, there was uh, an Ontario Chief Coroner's report published this year on understanding fire death in First Nations, which found that First Nations children are more than 86 more times likely to die in a fire. And 86% of fires that occurred in structures on First Nations um, didn't even have basic smoke alarms uh, and fire services were rarely available. So that was a really interesting report and it started to help me understand where some of the disparities were and the differences needed in, in, in sort of supporting these unique communities. Um, kind of along the, uh, the same lines, uh, after wildfires in Ontario, uh, the Anishinaabe Aski Nation uh, actually provided an 80-page 
Heritage report to Premier Ford mentioning that they were looking for uh, improvements in emergency management. And, and really what they, they were uh, really trying to point at is um, that there needed to be a tripartite agreement between uh, First Nations, the provinces, and federal governments around emergency management. There's, you know, different memorandums of understanding or agreements between Indigenous communities and the federal government. But uh, at the end of the day, if we're seeing, you know, these kind of disparate outcomes for people who live in Indigenous communities or who are Indigenous, then obviously something something else needs to be done. So um, the report, I think, uh, would be a really interesting read for us, Grayson, uh, something to take a look at, but also to mention that um, when we do talk about wildfires and, and, and management of uh, wildfire fuels and things like that, um, it is recognize that indigenous cultural burns are are part of kind of keeping our communities safe and and uh, kind of protecting uh, our communities from wildfire risks. So clearly there's a lot that we need to learn, a lot that we need to change, and a lot that we need to, to work together towards on this issue. And to that end, very excited to be interviewing Dr. Many Guns, who is an expert in decolonization, and that'll be coming up in 2022. And it's also well past time that we at Epic uh, came up with a bit of a traditional land acknowledgement. So that going forward will be part of our podcast as well. So uh, I want to circle back to uh, the mandate letter that I mentioned earlier in the episode. Um, So uh, the mandate letter was delivered from uh, Prime Minister Trudeau to Minister Blair, uh, our Minister of Public Safety and Emergency Preparedness, and uh, outlined kind of the priorities for the minister. And really what we saw in the mandate letter is uh, the express will to increase resilience uh, and readiness. Particularly, I would say there was a a strong focus on health-related emergencies, um, which I think is a kind of a direct byproduct of of the fact that we are still living in a pandemic. But uh, there's also uh, mentions of working with Indigenous communities and experts, uh, provinces, territories, and municipalities to to have a whole of government uh, strategy for planning and preparedness. And uh, really, there's a look at what can we do now in the face of catastrophic, possible catastrophic uh, impacts due to climate change? So some mentions of flood mapping uh, and uh, establishing, I think really, this I think is really interesting, establishing a low cost national flood insurance mechanism that can be accessed uh, by, by the public. Certainly a very high level mandate, but I thought it was also quite comprehensive and I do not envy Minister Blair's responsibility going forward. There is a lot in there. It's a must read for any emergency manager as it aligns well with the Emergency Management Framework for Canada and a lot of the initiatives at a federal level. And this sort of stuff will become your mandate to some degree as well. So please do give a a look and we'll include it in the show notes. Uh, Some other Canadian firsts. Uh, The International Panel on Climate Change released their most recent report, which outlined some of the climate change impacts and statistics. And Ontario released their Incident Management System 2.0. I love reading through these sorts of things. Uh, This was a fairly significant update. Their last version was from 2008. 
and one of the interesting changes was it is no longer a doctrine but more of a guidance. Um, there are also three emergency operations center uh, options instead of just one. And these three are site-based, incident support, and hybrid. And if you look through the document, there are some new sections. So not just planning and operations and, and logistics and uh, finance, but things like the situational awareness section, planning support, resource support, EOC support, public information management section, and scientific technical section. So a bit of a reimagining of EOC operations uh, from Ontario. Uh, there was also a really interesting guide for wildland urban interface fires that was released, which is the first one for Canada, and we'll include that in our show notes as well, as well as some first ever flood impact uh, mapping that was done uh, at a Canadian level. So now you can zoom in on your spot and see what your your flood impacts are, which has been a huge gap in Canadian uh, flood preparedness for a very long time. And it's, it's great to see this finally coming out. And then finally, I thought that this might not be a first, but it certainly popped up a lot in 2021, is that there seemed to be a lot more debate about the role of emergency management during things like a pandemic. Uh, there were lots of people on both sides saying emergency managers should have been in charge during the pandemic and that health should have stayed in, in health. And on the flip side, um, something as large as and complex as this uh, requires that whole of government response and, and to be led by um, the best ministry. So lots of arguments on both sides. And I think this has the making of an epic debate going forward. So stay tuned for that as well. Amazing. Love those epic debates. Absolutely. We got to do an epic debate at a conference. This was the March 2021 Nate Emergency Management Stakeholder Summit. Some really good speakers there. One of the key takeaways uh, that was voiced by Chief Sue Henry from the Calgary Emergency Management Agency was that there is no outside the yellow tape anymore. Uh, this was a, a great realization that was shared by many EM organizations is that we can't think about emergency management as response agencies anymore or incident response agencies anymore. We need to be integrated into government and whole of society response. Uh, I also managed to attend the Emergency Preparedness for Healthcare Industry Conference. And there were some interesting uh, um, presentations there. Somehow people managed to make some time while they were responding to the pandemic to attend uh, and talk about things like different management approaches to mass casualty incidents during pandemic, including deploying hospital resources to the scene of a mass casualty incident, which is certainly not the norm. Uh, and I think there's a lot more to talk about for healthcare preparedness. I was certainly left with more questions than answers. So that's going to be another topic of focus for us in 2022. Did you attend any interesting conferences, Jillian? I sure did. You were there too. <laughs> we attended the Disaster and Emergency Management Conference, um, and it was a diverse virtual program, I have to say, um, with a concurrent emergency management and CRT track. So really interesting that we could have um, looked at any of, sat in on any of the sessions from either of those tracks. Um, I personally really enjoyed the amount of case studies there were at this conference, and I attended one particular session about the Fort McMurray floods and the speakers from the regional municipality of Wood Buffalo really provided, I think, 
very generous reflections on what worked and what they learned, particularly from a communications perspective. So that's just one example of, of lots and lots of learnings um, at DEMCON. And of course, Epic Podcast hosted our very own roundtable where we explored emergency management tools like after action reviews, HIRAs, and HRVAs. And thanks to all that participated in that session. If you're interested in seeing our takeaways from the roundtable, we've posted them on our Twitter page at epic underscore underscore podcast. Um, and thanks again to the DEMCON team for having us and congrats to the Ontario Association of Emergency Managers and their partners for another successful year. So we've talked about some pretty serious incidents. We've talked about some pretty complex uh, problems that aren't going to go anywhere in, in 2022. Let's lighten the mood and talk about our favorite moments of 2021. Jillian, what stands out for you as favorite moments? Well, I've really felt barge content this year was very high. <laughs> um, so, I mean, on a serious note, generally there's been a lot of talk about supply, supply chain disruptions due to the pandemic, but also due to the BC floods and, and other things happening across the country. And so, you know, we, we've heard of barges being held at ports. And the example that I kind of want to bring up is barges were being used to bring in supplemental oil to the lower mainland of BC when pipe lines, rail, and high, highways were disrupted during the BC rain event. So uh, really a time for barges to shine. But on a lighter note, uh, and this has been a, a joke for Vancouver, I think, but um, a, a barge got stuck uh, off uh, one of our downtown beaches. Um, so it was blown to shore during the extreme rain event, and it now has its very own Twitter account and an official park board sign called Barge Chilling Beach, uh, as well as some gingerbread house replicas so you know you balance the serious with the the lighter notes when it comes to uh extreme weather <laughs> and on my end there were two that i think stood out for me one was the creation of compassionate isolation facilities on a indigenous community that i'm near to which is Siksika, and they created a really really great video on how they were doing culturally appropriate care uh, during COVID for people who needed to, to isolate and just a really, really warm, heartfelt, supportive approach to a really tricky situation. I'm going to drop that in our show notes and I really recommend that you, you look at it. It was a great, great example of a community-led initiative that aligned with public health orders in a culturally safe way. Uh, and on a lighter note, my I think my favorite news story of the year was uh, around maple syrup. So during this, the various supply chain issues, uh, Canada released 50 million pounds from its strategic maple syrup reserve. And I think this is a great example of excellent continuity planning uh, because we simply cannot go without maple syrup. I love it. So what do you think we can expect in 2022? Let's get out your crystal ball. Mm -hmm. Okay, so... In 2022, I think we'll find out if COVID-19 will become endemic or not. I think that's, you know, I phrase that in a way that I could be right either way. <laughs> and um, I mean, maybe this is a cop out, but I think with climate change, we are already seeing extreme weather more and more. So um, I think it's very, very possible that we see more events connected to extreme weather. More breaking of records. Well, that's a little bit... Uh, pessimistic, but I think you might be correct. Um, mm -hmm. I think that 
we might see even more of an increase of a spotlight on emergency management. I said this last year, and, and it certainly came true. You know, uh, 15 Auditor General reports were released this year, all of which had to do with emergency management in some way, whether it be pandemic or rail or wildfire or flood. We are in the spotlight. And for reference, in previous years, the Auditor General has released maybe two or three reports, and they're usually to do with workplace safety or arts in the community or, so, or something like that. So a dramatic shift at a very high level to focus on what we are doing. And I mentioned earlier, but I, I think this is the end of impunity um, for emergency managers, and it's time to, to really shine or maybe not shine. So uh, I am both optimistic and pessimistic going into 2022 uh, as to whether or not emergency management as a, as a field can really stand up to scrutiny. Uh, Thankfully, have you... we have lots of ways to do continuing education or, or <laughs> you know. That's right. Brush up <laughs> by listening to podcasts. Absolutely. Yes. <laughs> um, and speaking of our podcast, we've got a few New Year's resolutions. So coming soon to Epic Podcast, we've got Dr. Cavello and Dr. Coombs talking about crisis communications. Uh, Sophie Giebault with the Institute for Catastrophic Loss Reduction talking about climate resilient and climate adaptive infrastructure. We've got Dr. Sadir, who's, who will be talking about the link between climate change and healthcare, uh, and we'll guide you through creating effective New Year's resolutions and objectives with Tom Cox. Uh, we'll also be highlighting a few Canadian Journal of Emergency Management publications, including one all about the Toronto van attack. All this and more on the 2022 season of Epic Podcast. And uh, holy smokes, that was a long episode. Uh, thanks for everyone who made it to the end. You know, so much happened in 2021, and we wouldn't have been able to get through it without support from listeners like you and also from our partners. So a huge thanks to you and a huge thanks to CGEM, CCRC, CRHNet, IAM, Ontario Demcon and the Alberta Podcast Network for getting us through a year that will certainly be one for the history books. And that's all for this episode of Epic Podcast and the 2021 season. A very heartfelt thank you to all of our listeners and all of the emergency managers working over the holidays. Hopefully you get some time off and a very happy new year to you and yours. If you'd like to find out more or give us a suggestion for 2022, you can email us at team at epicpodcast.ca. Send us a tweet to username epic underscore underscore podcast or visit our website at www.epicpodcast.ca. Thanks for listening. Just before we go, I do want to take a moment to thank our sponsors. This episode of Epic Podcast is brought to you by the Alberta Association of Optometrists, proudly celebrating a century of caring for Albertans. Many people don't call their optometrist for urgent eye care when they need it. From spring cleaning mishaps to winter eye infections, if you or your family have an eye emergency, doctors of optometry are trained to diagnose, treat, and prescribe medications. No referral necessary. And just a reminder, Alberta Health coverage is available towards your urgent eye care appointment. The Alberta Association of Optometrists represents almost 800 doctors of optometry in over 80 communities across the province. Members are highly trained, regulated health professionals who provide primary eye health and vision care to Albertans. Learn more at optometrist.ab.ca. This episode is also brought to you by Pod Power. With Pod Power, our sponsors are making it possible for us to amplify the voices of Albertans and Alberta podcasters. In this episode, we're helping give a Pod Power shout out to Book Woman. Book Woman is a podcast about editing, publishing, and writing Indigenous stories. 
Three Métis librarians representing nations from across the homeland aim to inspire Indigenous peoples to share their stories in whatever form they enjoy. Guests include Indigenous storytellers from diverse mediums like podcasting, burlesque, books, comics, social media, films, music, and everything in between. You can listen and find out more at bookwomanpodcast.ca. You've been listening to an Epic Podcast production, a proud partner of the International Association of Emergency Managers Canada and a member of the Alberta Podcast Network. Locally grown, community supported. As always, Epic Podcasts are designed as a supplementary educational tool for the EM professional on the go. The views and opinions explored during this podcast do not necessarily represent the agencies or organizations that we or our guests may belong to. For more information about the show or the people on it, visit our website at epicpodcast.ca or follow us on Twitter at username Epic Podcast. Stay tuned for more on the next episode of Epic Podcast, current, relevant, Canadian.